Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So Madeleine Bell, this is, well, this is an incredible honour because you are someone who has been involved not only in your own career, but in so many other people's career that you have had uh, or you've made an amazing contribution to popular music in your life and popular music in the widest terms, in the music terms from gospel to soul to jazz, uh, you know, to to the height of the pop charts, everything. As well. Yeah, no, I know. There's no, there's no end to it, Matthew. There's no end to your talents here. Now, <laughs> I want to I start really going back and just to find out when you were growing up in New, New Jersey, what sort of music did your parents listen to? What was your first sort of musical impressions at that Take time? Take a guess. Take a guess. Gospel. Oh, it was gospel, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's all there was in the house, except for when um, my grandmother, who had been a dancer in the Cotton Club, when her friends used to come around, you know, they would all sit and reminisce about the old days and everything. And then, you know, they might put on some um, Billy Holiday or Louis Jordan or something like that on, on the Victrola, as they called it. <laughs> yeah. So, but otherwise it was basically all gospel music in my house. And, and uh, yeah, that was it. Music, yeah. I, music obviously played a, a role through gospel, but the church played a, a, a massive role, particularly for the black community uh, in America. What role was that? Can you, can you tell me what it was and how it brought the community together? Well, first of all, everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's business as well. And it was a community. It was like family because you didn't have much. Uh, so that was the place that you went for entertainment. Um, uh, you could eat at church as well. There was always some food be- being cooked and sold at the church, always raising money for church. Um, it was just, that was, at, and it was a good place. They had um, um, sections, areas in the church for kids. Like a, uh, I was in the children's chorus, when children's choir when I was a kid. Then I got into the the ladies' choir, then the mixed choir. Then uh, there was always something going on. There was always music going on, always gospel music. And it was always piano and having organ. That's all we had at the time. And no microphones. So so when did people realize, hey, this this girl's got a voice? When did that come? 
Well, I was in a couple of groups. Um, my first group <laughs> was called Four Jacks and a Jill. Guess who Jill was? Um, and we never made any money. We were only about 13, 14 years old. Uh, the most money we ever made, we went for an audition in Harrison, New Jersey. And uh, they paid us $2 each bus fare and we walked all the way home. It was, you know, we sang and walked all the way home. Yeah. Were you in, oh, so, so I'm coming in. I, I can the see the door opening and someone's coming in, yeah. <laughs> ah, oh, it's just a breeze, okay. <laughs> uh, the worst storms and everything here. Um, everything is, yesterday, everything, everywhere you looked, even the sky was orange because uh, it all, it's all blown up from the Sahara. I'm looking at orange mud as we speak. Yeah, Madeline's yeah. going to make everyone jealous because she lives in Spain. She's now telling us that we're <laughs> saying yeah. it. So she's having a hard time, but it's in yeah, Spain. We know you're having the time of your life. What was I talking about? Well, I just wondered if your, your parents I, uh, encouraged you what? or your grandmother encouraged you. Who encouraged you to really take a, a look my, at your singing? When you say parents, I mean, my mum was only 15 years older than me. And my father uh, was... Uh, a, 17, 18 years older than me, but he was never in my life, even though they ran off and eloped and got married. And nine months later, my mom had my sister. And I only saw my sister for the first time when I was 19. And then I'm, we never met up again until 2001. So I spent most of my life never knowing my, my family. And I still don't know anything about them, really, seriously. So I was raised by this woman named Madeline, white or Maddie as everybody called her. And she was the best friend of my biological grandmother who died in a fire. So this woman raised my mother and then she raised me. So that's parents as far as anybody is concerned. It was Maddie White who raised me. And um, she, she didn't have much of an education but she had common sense like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I'd quote her basically every day because everything she told me was right so give me an example what 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 sort of advice did she give you for life that you've held on to well first of all she used to say to me the best money to spend is your own so i had a job i was making money when i was like nine ten years old i was babysitting and running around doing errands for um older people running and paying their bills for them and walking home and keeping the bus fare you know they gave me bus fare and they would pay me a dollar to do it and I, I would oh and I, I did everything I babysat I delivered flowers on Mother's Day I delivered um um prescriptions from the local uh, pharmacy to um different establishments I mean I I earned my own money right up until now I mean, you mentioned about the, the church and what role it played. Newark has an amazing history of um, singers that came from Newark. And there's yeah. one family in, in uh, particular, um, you know, the Houstons, Sissy Houston, and uh -oh, the Dion Warwick. The Drink Gods, that's the family. D R I N K A R D S, Drink Gods. Ah, Drink Gods. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was the family. That was. Um, Sissy Houston was Sissy Drinkard. She married, uh, I think his name was John Houston, yeah? But before him, um, my first of all, my church choir 
and um, the New Hope Baptist Church Choir used to compete every uh, fourth Sunday of the month where we would go to their church or they would come to our church. But they had Sissy Houston, Dion, Didi, Didi, who was an incredible singer. These people were in the choir. So, I mean, every, every time we competed, um, they always won because they had the best singers in the choirs, yeah? But people, and people always say Dion was, was, was Whitney's aunt. No, they were cousins. Dion's mother and Whitney's mother were sisters. That's how oh, it wow. worked out. Yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. I mean, what a, what a wealth of talent, you know, know, in one community. I think that's, that's incredible. Do you see a reason behind that? Is, is there a social reason behind why, why that's the case? I, I really couldn't tell you that a lot of talent came out of New Jersey and most of it, um, they originated from the South and they ended up in New Jersey. And my mom's best friend was Sarah Vaughn. They oh, wow. grew, I think Sarah was two years, maybe three years older than my mother, but my mother used could do hair and she did Sarah Vaughn's hair when Sarah Vaughn went over to the Apollo on talent night, Wednesday night, talent night and won my mom had done her hair. Jerry Lewis and I was slung out of the same high school, not at the same time, um, but Jerry Lewis was from Newark, New Jersey as well. I mean, Newark really produced a lot of talent. We talked today about representation and about figures and, uh, you know, I'm a gay man and in the 70s, I With had you. no, exactly. And I had no one to look at and to say, you know, this could be, where I want to be in life. This is sort of my hero, an out gate man who would have been on TV or successful or whatever. They didn't really exist, of course, until the late 70s, 80s, when things opened up. In your era, there were, I mean, I say in your era, there was racism is, is, you know, everywhere today. In your era, it was so endemic and so difficult to have figures that where you could look up to for yourself were there people that you looked up to at that period there weren't a lot um my favorite my first idol was sam cook i started there right um everybody else it was always so you know i mean i was grow, grew up listening to Maria jackson whom i got the pleasure of meeting at one point when i was with alex bradford um, but all of my heroes were gospel singers and things, you know, and uh, we, if we, on radio station WNJR, that was our radio, local radio station, and I think it was like Sundays they would play gospel music. If there was, you know, like uh, the, the latest that it, that it come out, you know, the um, soul stirrers and, and, and uh, but it was all gospel so the only people only heroes I had were gospel singers until I left school and, and got a job and started listening to the radio more so this listening to the radio at that point what sort of music were you listening to was that R&B yeah um some I, I worked my first job proper job was in the supermarket and I was at the back because I was a meat rapper and I was in control of the radio. So I used to listen to all of this stuff, like um, the flamingos and Eddie, my love, I love you so, you know, all of the, the doo-wop groups and things like that. And uh, all the stars out in the, shoo up I knew all of the stuff. And I used to, it used to blare out and the, the boss used to tell me, Madeline, turn that radio down. But that's what I was listening to because it was, it was basically, it was new to me. 
because I wasn't allowed to listen to it in the house. But then when I, as I got older and started uh, watching, and, and then we got a television and we watched American Bandstand and everybody wanted to watch uh, when Sam Cooke was on because he was one of the very few black people, if, if not the only one who was ever allowed on television. You know, so uh, our heroes came through the radio. When did you first encounter racism as a young person that you really knew what it was? Well, I mean, there were experiences, of course, um, when I was younger, you know, I mean, they even had problems. Uh, I had a, um, a mixed race teacher who was very, he didn't like dark children, the dark students, seriously. And he and I had a bit of a run-in when I was about 12 years old. And he grabbed me in my collar and I told him to take his damn hands off me. And he reported me to the principal and the principal called my grandmother who came marching down the school ready to kick my butt. Then the kids came home from my class, came home with me to tell my grandmother what really happened. And my grandmother turned up the next day and told the teacher in no uncertain, because she was mixed race as well. You know, she'd been born, um, her, her mother had been a slave. So, <coughs> so she knew what racism was and she knew what the problem was anyway. Um, but the one time that I actually really experienced it wasn't um, uh, when I was 19, 18, 19 and I had to go to New Orleans on the bus from Newark that was two days and two nights the rest and that's when I was with Alex Bradford and the rest of the singers they were doing something else that they had already been booked for and I wasn't part of that so I was on this bus for two days and two nights down through the south and that's when I started to experience real racism uh, fortunately the bus was stopping at um, designated Greyhound stops. But on the way back, we came back by car. And Alex Bradford had a Cadillac, but there was all six of us in the Cadillac. And uh, some of the places that we had to stop, they didn't like the idea that we were in a Cadillac. They didn't like the idea that we were black. We, uh, we had to go around the back to a window to order some food. We had to go into a little um, hut and used a toilet that was a hole in the ground and, and had telephone book for toilet paper. This was my, this was uh, about a year before I came to Europe. What does that do to someone? I mean, cause I can't, I can't imagine that. I mean, I can, I can hear what you're saying and I can try and imagine being in that situation, but I can't imagine what that would, that would do to me. That would make me so angry. It, well, it, it made me angry. And it, of course, Alex Bradford. And, and, and bear in mind, you say you're gay. I was in a group with five guys and they were all gay. And they took care of me. They took care of me. And all they had, every one of them had a knife. Nobody, they didn't have guns because they didn't have guns. But everybody had a knife so that they, they could try and protect themselves because it was a hard life. It was hard. The Chitlin circuit. Oh, God. Some of the stories that have come out from the Chitlin circuit, and and I mean, we didn't experience that, but we did experience some heavy stuff down there. So, and 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 the reason why I I, I wasn't going to school, and I got expelled from school because they weren't teaching me what my grandmother was telling me, and she had experienced it, and so had her mother. But they um, America did not teach Black history at all. No. Black history. All they taught was white history. And if the, if slaves, I don't even think slaves were ever mentioned. 
they kept all of that out of the history books, which is what they're trying to do now. Take so much, keep so much out of the history books. And this is what was happening in America at the time, things that were going on in America. And, and Emmett Till, that really did it. That kid that they, they, they beat to death, that really did it. That showed the, the world. Thankfully, his mother said, I want the world to see this. This is what America was like and is still like. It's just they keep bits quiet. And, and uh, thankfully, that orange clown uh, has given all of these racists and, and homophobics and whatever. He's given them a platform. So ah, that's America. I don't even want to go back. And this is my big birthday coming up in July. And I tried to go back, but the, the ticket prices are too expensive. You know, it, it would cost me over a thousand quid to go back to the States. I could spend a thousand quid on some friends and have a nice dinner. You mentioned so uh, Alex Bradford who was uh, a pivotal person, I would think, in, in your life. Can you, tell me yeah, how you, can you tell me how you met him and tell me the type of person he was and his type of performance? We, uh, uh, I had been singing with a group called the Glover Tones. That was my first gospel group. And we used to travel back and forth over the weekend to North Carolina uh, or Connecticut and places like that and come home with $5 each. And I just thought, this ain't no money. After a while, I decided I'd had enough. Anybody, when everybody went back to Newark. They, we were in Connecticut, but I stayed because Alex Bradford was on and I wanted to see him. And I stayed, at, I think I must have been at somebody's house or something like that. And Alex Bradford saw me and he said, aren't you that singer from, the, you know, you that little girl from the Glover Tones? I said, yeah. He said, do you want to come and join my group? Yeah, the girl who had been singing with them, I think her name was Judy, got pregnant. So they needed a girl singer. And that's how I got, that's how I got the job. And he only lived, I could walk to his house from um, where I worked was halfway between where I lived and where he lived. Because everything was close by. So I could walk to Alex Bradford's in, in 10 minutes from home. So we used to rehearse and, and um, I would go, from um, the supermarket to his house because it was just up the road. And he lived around the corner from um, Sarah Vaughn's parents, whom I used to deliver groceries to and didn't know who they were for a while. But he made an, also made an amazing contribution because of his own style. Can you tell me about yeah. that as well? Uh, well, um, all I know is Alex Bradford, he, he wrote everything and uh, he had so many different names, you know, um, <laughs> that he, that's, the, trying to sell his music he, he was always Richard King that was I don't remember that was his name when he would sell stuff because he would uh he conducted the the um Abyssinian Baptist Church choir everybody knew he was gay it didn't matter um he he was a beautiful guy he could cook oh god could he cook his home was always like a, uh, he had a flat in it was 19 Stratford Place that was the, the address in Newark and uh, his, his place was like open house, especially on Sunday after church, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, we'd be in church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening for the Sunday evening broadcast. And then afterwards, everybody would come back to Alex Bradford's house and he had bottles of scotch, whiskey, um, uh, uh, gin in, in his cap. It was like, I don't know how, maybe a gallon. And they were in a, uh, like a container and you just pulled it forward 
to pour because you didn't have to lift the bottle. I remember seeing them as well. And all these gospel ladies, they all loved him. They all were in love with Alex Bradford. <laughs> and there was no way. <laughs> he took care of me and he went to my grandmother when, when Black Nativity came up. He went to my grandmother and, and said, told her that we had been asked to go to Europe and that he would take care of me. And he did. Okay, I'll come on to Black Nativity in a second, but I just want to end with um, Alex Bradford and because his importance is in terms of people like Little Richard and, and Ray Charles. And I met Little Richard. We met Little Richard in Hamburg at the Star Club with Billy Preston, who was 16 years old at the time on Hammond Organ. And Ray Charles came to Black Nativity uh, when we were at the 41st Street Theatre. Before it ever came to Europe or before anybody knew about it, this is when and, and um, black people, all the black entertainers were, were um, supporting because it was off, the first off-Broadway black show uh, written by Langston Hughes. So, Alex. I mean, that was revolutionary in its way, wasn't it, at that time? And this is during the, this is in the, 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 the middle of the civil rights movement. And uh, in an era where I presume just by having a show like that, um, you know, was a was an amazing uh, statement and something yeah. to be involved in. How did that feel for you as a black person to be involved in something like that at that time? For me, I was just so starstruck. I mean, it was, first I'd come over to New York and I got a chance to be, in New York, staying in a hotel. There I am, 19 years old. Wow. And I'm in a musical off Broadway. You know, all of this was like Hollywood as far as as far as we were all concerned. Go, we're gonna be on in a musical off Broadway. What? This is un unbelievable. And 19 years old. I mean, I was so green. So very green. <laughs> and I'm still green. Oh, I but bet you just, were green for long there. <laughs> yeah, but it was just such a beautiful, for me now, thinking about it, it was just such a beautiful experience at my age to get the chance to do all of that. Before I even, I, I turned 20 when I was in London. But, you know, before I was 20 years old, this was all happening to me before then. So. You came to London because of Black Nativity, didn't you? That was, it was something that then toured in, in or well, came over to the to the UK. Um, when was when did the moment come where you decided, okay, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to make a career. I don't know if you thought of it in that way, but you must have had some idea. First of all, we came over to uh, Europe. We were supposed to be in Italy for four weeks, fly to London to record the show for Associated Rediffusion Television, yeah? While we were in the studio, another guy came, just like the one who had brought us to Italy, another guy came and said, I have the lease of the theater in the West End and I'd like to put the show on. He put this to the producers and they agreed. That was at the Criterion. We were staying at the Regent Palace Hotel right across the road. We were supposed to be in London for two weeks and I'm still here. That was in June, June early, early July, 1962. And funnily enough, I'm doing a gig at Crazy Cox on the 27th of June and it will be almost exactly 60 years that I was across the road. Wow, that's Crazy, incredible. 
Circus as well. And we used to, the Regent Palace Hotel, you had to cross Piccadilly Circus to get to Criterion, cross the five minutes across the road. Here I am repeating history again. But I mean, I just had, I've had a, a lovely life, you know, I mean, I'm, I've been very blessed. All I can say is I've really been blessed. I mean, a lot of things have happened to me that weren't so nice, but a lot of more things have happened that I remember. Things that weren't, you tend to, you learn by it and then push it, push it away. Dusty Springfield was a figure in, in terms of you staying in London, wasn't she? Because you actually worked with her. Was that one of the reasons why you stayed? No. On the last week that we were in London doing Black Nativity, this man named Norman Newell came backstage and said, my name is Norman Newell and I'm from EMI Records and I'd like to sign you up. That was in August 1963. Yeah. I went home with everybody else because that was the end of the, all the runs. We had spent 14 months at, at what was supposed to be six weeks turned into 14 months in Europe. I went home, told my grandmother that I'd been offered a record contract and that I wanted to go back to London. And she just said to me in no uncertain terms, honey, opportunity very seldom knocks more than twice, more than once. Go over, if it doesn't work out, you know you always got a home to come back to, which is what I did. Then I came back to Europe recorded and then had to start working and I did all the American bases in, in the UK and in Germany and I mean I paid my dues for over a year uh, and I had a record out so it meant that I could I was doing Ready Steady Go which meant that I could go into Ready Steady Go all the time because I'd been an artist so I was always there and New Year's Eve 1964 Dusty Springfield came over to me and said, you're that singer I've heard about. Do you do sessions? And I didn't even know what a session was, but I was so hungry at the time. And she took my number. Two days later, having agreed to a job in the International Cinema in Westbourne Grove at six guineas a week for, 50, uh, for 11 hours a day. 11 hours a day, six days a week, 50, uh, six guineas a week. I get the call when I come back home. Uh, can you ring this number? I rang this number and it was Johnny Franz, um, a secretary who's Dusty's record producer. Can you do a session for Dusty tomorrow? Yes. What did we, what was the fee for three hours? Six guineas. And that was it. I never looked back after that. So Dusty gave me my very first session. And then it snowballed to the point where we were doing her TV series and, and doing all of her backings. And then I started getting my own work. But Dusty gave me my first gig. And to this day, I still thank her because I have to say to everybody, she is the reason why I'm still here. If she hadn't given me a break, I would have had to go back to Newark. Was there a community of singers at that point? Because the 60s, you know, as in, in a sort of cliche term, we have this cliche of it. Uh, as as being you know the 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 decade of of sexual decade. awareness of they, they, yeah well I don't know it was a lot of fun I would have thought actually yeah. <laughs> yeah but was there a big community of singers and did you hang out together and did you help each other or was there sort of a competitive spirit? Well, the first singer first singers I met were the backing singers in the studio. That was in November, 1963. This is before I met Dusty and everything. And they were the breakaways who did everybody's backing vocals. And it was the first time I'd ever worked with white people. 
which was uh, an amazing thing, you know, white entertainers. And they were so nice to me and so helpful and everything. And we compared our chewed up nails and, and, and all of that. That's what it was like. Eventually, when I started getting more work, the singers, we, we would congregate in the studios because that's where we would see each other. So it was myself and Leslie Duncan, of course. And then Dusty's manager, Vic Billings, he brought Kiki down from Bradford. So Kiki was one of the backing singers as well. And then it got, it got to be more and more. There was the uh, Mike Sam singers. I mean, I would get booked for sessions for them and I didn't read. They all read music, but sometimes they wanted a, a certain sound or something like that. So they would get me to come in. Um, but it wasn't like we would come, we would meet up and, and jam or anything like that. The only place we would jam would be in, in, um, in the studios because we had to take, that was serious. You know, my time was money. So when we had time, we would sit and harmonize and all of that in the studio, but we, we didn't have time to like go out hanging out partying or anything like that. So how did and session I, work work at that point? You know, you said it was in the studios and time was money. Did it work differently than, than it would work today? Did you have to well, be like... First of all, everything was recorded at the same time. In those days, the full orchestra, the singers, the, the soloists, everybody was in the studio at the same time time they only had four track studios so everything had to be done everybody had to be on time and ready to go <coughs> excuse me there was no messing about or, or anything like that it was it was serious business and I learned a lot and as I said uh, I didn't read music I didn't read Leslie didn't read Kiki didn't read um, but we would get booked by like the uh, Maggie Strata with the Ladybirds Maggie knew that, that um, we didn't read. So if she booked us or booked me for anything, she would be really helpful. She was we, the one who booked us on Benny Hill. That was Maggie Greta, yeah? And, the, and she was the Ladybirds. And um, the Ladybirds and the Breakaways all came from Liverpool. They had been Vernon girls, all of them. You know, so they'd all had some experience. So I learned a lot from them and, you know, just sitting talking with them because I didn't know anybody. The only person I knew was Dusty. I didn't know, I didn't have, I mean, I had some friends who were from Trinidad, but they didn't know anything. They weren't in the music business or anything. They knew about steel drums, but that was pretty much it. <laughs> when did, I, I'm hoping I'm getting my timeline right, but the, the track, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, wasn't that in the later part of the 60s? And how did that come up for you? That, it wasn't in the late, it was, I recorded that on as part of an album. Uh, I think it was on, was it on the Bells of Poppin, album, which was my first album. Um, that was about 1966. And it was just an album track. And I recorded it because the demo was Dee Dee Warwick. I did a, a couple of things that Dee Dee Warwick had done the vocal, and she did a much better version than, than I did. She was always my favorite singer out of the whole family. Um, but as I said, and it was just sheer fluke that uh, Phillips in London sent some recordings over to America. And one of their labels was um, Mercury, I think it was. And one of the guys at Mercury liked I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, and he printed up 10,000 copies and sent them around them. America and the DJs picked up on it. It was, and then I got a call saying, you got a record in the hit parade. 
How was so, that feeling? I, you know, for you then back then, how was that feeling? Because you'd come um, from America, from, you'd taken this risk, and then suddenly you're back, in a sense, in America yeah. as a star in that sense. Yeah, so, it was well, it was wonderful, wonderful feeling. And when they said to me, you're going to have to go to the States to promote it, which was great. Uh, I mean, I had gigs to do, and my backing band was status quo. <laughs> And when I when I uh, left, they were going into the studio. And when I came back, they were already in the charts. They had just recorded pictures of matchstick men. That was my backing band. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. This was the, the the period you go back to the States, this has happened to you, you come back and then um, Blue Mink, who had already started, came to you. It was about 1966 that, that I'm going to make you love me. I came back, um, I did a tour with the Four Tops, thanks to Brian Epstein. So I got a chance to promote the song and everything. But Blue Mink... Um, I, I knew all the musicians because we used, as I said, we used to record everything at the same time. So we used to see each other sometimes on a daily basis, all of us. And I got a call from um, Roger Coolum, who was keyboard. And he said, um, he said, me and the guys have been doing an album, doing some recording and it's, it's all instrumental. And we thought it might be a bit boring if we don't put some vocals on. So can you come and do some vocals? No problem. And it wasn't like it was a session. It was a favor. So I went in, did the vocal. Two days later, he called me back again and said, Roger Cook has written this song. And we think it'd be good if, as a duet. You, can you come in and do it? And that was Melting Pot. And we did three takes of it. Came back in the control box, listened to it. And one of the guys said, we should put this out as a single. Do you want to join the group? And me and Roger just looked at each other and just thought, yeah, why not? We know each, We all know each other, so why not? It was that simple. Harmonies were very important to that group, weren't they? There was something really wonderful about, well, that about always, harmonies. Always me and Roger who did all the vocals. And I, I found out that ABBA were heavily influenced by Blue Mink. And somebody, this guy has written two thick books, which I, um, he sent me. I can't find me in the book because I don't even know where to look. But he said to me, he said, you know, ABBA were really big fans of Blue Mink. That's how they learned their, their harmonies and everything, listening to Blue Mink. And also they were into Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway's writing, you know, because of them writing all of their stuff as well. So. That's amazing. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. But I'm sure that's not the, that they're not the only band. They're not the only singers that, that you've influenced uh, in, in, in your life. I'm sure there oh, are I'm many, sure. many others. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I mean, one of our keyboard players was named Reggie Dwight. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What happened to him? <laughs> what happened to him? What happened? Actually, and the day of... the day we're speaking, it's his 75th birthday. I don't know if you know what that. What day? Elton John's 75 today. Yeah. Oh, bless him! Bless him! Oh. <laughs> I, I'll come to him again later because you you actually uh, worked on uh, his self-titled album. That was his second album that really sort of started his career and also on Honky Chateau. But first- And of, um, we Connection. Oh, wow, yeah, which is one yeah. of my favorites as well. If you wanna stay alive. That's, yeah, that's us as well. 
So come to come to melting pot again because blue mink were very progressive in a lot of ways in terms of their um, lyrics. You know, there was songs uh, which were sort of about the environment. Yeah, uh, melting Our pot world. was you know a very racially aware uh, yeah. song. It's been banned. The BBC, what? it's been banned, totally banned. The BBC, thanks thanks to. Um, Tony Blackburn and Emperor Roscoe, who played it nonstop. I've actually got a video of them playing it nonstop. They promoted it and helped us get to uh, the top three. Tony Blackburn actually presented us with a silver disc, which is, is up on the wall. Yeah, I don't have many of those, but it's on the wall. Um, so the BBC backed them when they were backing us. But recently, uh, a couple of years ago, someone complained about... Um, um mixed with yellow chinky they didn't like that one person it possibly probably wasn't an asian because i've sung this song all over the world and and asked the people if the, um the staff like on the cruise ship who are all asian and they said no we love the song we love it we like the fact that we're being mentioned you know that we don't mind that some one person complained to the bbc about two years ago and they banned it it's a shame Never. because it's a real, it's a song about with an underlying theme of hope. Of they equality. never, they never even got to the chorus because if they'd gotten to the chorus, they would understand the storyline, but they never got to the chorus. And that was the second time it had been banned for the same reason that the one DJ in three home, home counties radio or something put it on, heard, take a pinch of white man, wrap it up in black skin and snatched it off and said, this is racist. He never even got to the chorus and the same thing happened again. But, you know, <laughs> Melting Pot was beaten from getting, stopped from getting any higher thanks to two little boys have two little toys. So, you know, this is what the music business is like. <laughs> sugar Sugar was number one for five, six weeks and we were quickly coming up the charts and then Ralph Harris came out with this one track and I had to review it for one of the music uh, papers. I think it was Disc or Record Mirror or something like that. And I said, this record has no chance. You know, it just wasn't, didn't it stop my mouth. He passed us and stopped us from getting any higher and Sugar Sugar dropped down to two. We stayed at number three and Ralph Harris got to number one with two little boys. And to this day, I don't understand why they never saw that. How did that change your life, having success? Well, it gave us constant work. And um, Blue Mink were together for four and a half years. And we got a chance to tour, you know, and we, we went to New Zealand because By the Devil got into the charts. It was like number one in the charts down there. And it was, it was sold 16,000, which was the equivalent to a million sales. <laughs> uh, so we, we had a good time uh, and we did all the clubs all the clubs in the in the UK, we worked our butts off, but we would come off stage in somewhere like Stockton on Tees and some of us would get in the car and drive all the way down to London to be in the studio for 10 o'clock in the morning because we couldn't risk, um, we knew that this wasn't going to last forever. And all the guys in the band had were all experienced, you know, they, they knew it wasn't going to last forever. So we, we were working all the time. So we were working at night doing the clubs and then the, <laughs> in the middle of the night 
driving all the way down the M1 or the M6 to do the studio work and then getting back in the car and driving all the way back up north to be on stage at, at 9, 10 o'clock that night. I mean, we worked our asses off. Seriously. Did you often not know who you were going to be doing sessions with when you... So tell me, tell me a sort of story about where you turn up and you don't know who it is and then suddenly you appear in front of someone. We turned up in, at Olympic in Barnes and um, it was myself, Rosetta Hightower and Sonny Leslie from Sue and Sonny who were great, back, great singers. And um, it was for Joe Cocker. We didn't even know who he was. Nobody knew who he was. He apparently had been waiting a while to get us to do the backing vocals. He told us what he wanted us to do. You know, can you work out some, some vocals on this? So me, Rosetta, and, and Sonny worked out all the backing vocals on. We didn't get the credit for it, though. The record producer, Denny, well, I can't remember. I uh, can't remember what his name was. He took the credit. We did that. We worked out the back, backing vocals. That was one session. Uh, me and Doris Troy and Nanette Workman is her name. We were booked for a session. We didn't know who the artists were. We didn't get there until like 11 o'clock at night. And that was for the Stones. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> and then we did a, a few sessions like that. Like there were new artists and no one knew who they were. And then we would be on the record and the record would be a hit. Um, uh, need a love to last forever. Need a love to last forever. Ooh, that's me. Oh, oh wow. that's everlasting love. I mean, I, we did so much and we didn't know who the people were when we got there. And we were doing, I mean, it got to the point where we would, some of us, I mean, I was doing three sessions a day, three, three hour sessions a day, sometimes four, sometimes five. You're up 24 hours. And when we did the Rolling Stones, when we arrived, uh, we hadn't eaten all day because we'd been working. And Mick said to us, would you, would you girls like something to eat? And we said, we, yeah, we'd love something to eat. You know, already like a, a gog looking at Mick Jagger. And uh, uh, about half an hour later, all of this hot food arrived and we knew, we, we thought we made it now. This was the first time we'd ever been experienced. Hot food at midnight, all came in one of those hostess trolleys. So. <laughs> <laughs> what about John Lennon? You also performed with John yeah. Lennon, didn't you? Yeah, John, uh, well, we, we knew who that was for. Doris Troy, had, she was signed to Apple. So uh, she had booked me to do the Billy Preston session with, with George. And she booked me to do um, Ringo session with George at Apple. And also she booked me along with, um, there were 15 singers booked to be at Apple at six o'clock. We all turned up and uh, only to find that John had changed his mind and decided he wanted to record at his house. We didn't see John, we just got this message. So there was a bus waiting for us. We went from Apple in Savile Row all the way to Sunningdale, to his house in Sunningdale. We get there and John had changed his mind again and decided to, he wanted to record at EMI, which wasn't known as Abbey Road, as popular as, as it is now. It was EMI. 
But <clears throat> some food had been laid on for, for us because we you know we'd been traveling for a couple of hours and still hadn't done anything. So there was all this food. So um, they said, we've laid out food for you. John told us to prepare food, blah, blah, blah. And I asked if I could go in that white room, which I did. So I got a chance to go into the white room and see the white piano and all of that. Get back on the bus, go back to London, back to EMI, all pile into EMI studio. I think it was studio one. It was the same studio that I had first originally recorded in a few years before then. And John came down the stairs and we're all like, and that was the first time we saw him. He comes down the stairs with uh, Yiki Yiki. That's what Nanette named her, Yoko. <laughs> he, <laughs> Nanette was from Jackson, Mississippi. So half, half Jewish with the Southern accent. She said, oh, here comes Yiki Yiki. <laughs> Nanette also is the, the, the voice, the honky-tonk woman. Mickey, when Mick heard her voice, he said, that's, that's the accent. I want on this. So that's Nanette that you hear singing that. Anyway, John comes down the stairs with Yoko and he said, we're not ready for you yet. He said, if there's anything you need, the canteen is open. We'll be open all night. Anything you want, just camp out, which is what we did. And we're down in the studio and we can see what's going, see something going on up in the control box. And in the control box was John Allen Klein, who was basically responsible for the Beatles breaking up. And, and, Yo and Yoko and Phil Spector, because Phil Spector produced the track and they were having a huge argument. You could see hands flying about. We couldn't hear what they were saying, but we could see. Anyway, John eventually came downstairs after about an hour and a half, two hours and said, this is what I want you to sing. Power to the people. We did it. He said, came down again after a couple of tries. And he said, can you be a bit more aggressive? Can you stomp your feet? If you hear the record, you, that's the first thing you hear on the record is these marching feet. That's us. He said, "Can if you stomp your feet, you know, make it a bit more aggressive." And uh, he moved the carpet. So he said, "No, I don't want the carpet. I want really loud noise because it was dust coming up from the carpet." Then he came back down again. And he said, "Can you do it really like?" So we we did it with our arms up, you know, black power or power to the people. Power and you can, that's all you can hear that. And that was it. We did it in a couple of takes. That was it. The next day, Doris Troy phoned and said, honey, I got your money. We were paid the next day, which was so unusual because usually you had to pay, wait for a check to be sent in the mail. But she rang and said, your money is here. So I went down to Apple and got my money. So that was the session for John. And I never saw him again. What was Yoko's involvement in that track she, when she, if she was there? As far as I could see, nothing. She just followed him down the stairs and she followed him up the stairs. And as I saw it said that she's credited for being one of the backing singers. Well, if she was, she was there when we weren't there. She wasn't on the recording with us. And I'm, somebody, I've actually, I don't know what I did with it. There's actually a photo from that session and John, is, John and Yoko are on it and all the singers and everything. I don't know what I did with that photo. Somebody sent it to me. Now, we, we mentioned Elton John before, who's 75 today, the day that we're talking, Reg Dwight, as, uh, as he was known when you met him. <laughs> so um, you worked with him on three albums, as, you, uh, as you've mentioned. How was it to work with Elton John? It was okay, because I knew him, you know, I mean, didn't have a problem at all. 
I mean, he was he was one of one of the lads as far as us working because he had been a, like a T boy, you know, and also uh, he had worked with Blue Mink, so he wasn't going to go big time on me. Oh, he but he never did. He wasn't big time with any of us. You know, he was just so glad that we were there. He literally, he was genuinely happy that we were all there supporting him. We were being paid, but we were all there. And on the original recording session, I mean, uh, except for Roger Coulomb, who was keyboard, all of Blue Mink was on on that black album, that black covered album. So, and oh, wow. Roger Cook, uh, Roger Cook had produced Empty Sky, which was his first album. So he already knew, and um, because Roger Cook was with Dick James Music, so he was always at, at in, in Denmark Street. So everybody knew everybody else, you know. I mean, we've gone through gospel. We've gone through um, well, your your listening and your your love of R and B. Um, we've gone through, you know, the pop uh, popular music with uh, Blue Mink and um, yeah. and and your work with other people, the sessions that you made, um, you eventually moved, if that's the right word, into being a jazz singer. What, how, what, how did that development come about? Hey, I'm not a jazz singer. I'm just a singer who in the studios, you had to do everything. You had to learn how to do everything. Um, and I would get sessions where I had to sing jazz or uh, a pop or classical or foreign language. I did an Avon commercial in four different languages. And to this day, I don't know what I was singing because we, they had to do it almost line by line. But, you know, we it, it wasn't that I was, I I'd ever declared myself as a jazz singer because I'm not, I'm just a singer. Um, but you had to be ready to and able to perform whatever the producers wanted when you walked in the studio and if they wanted you to sing some jazz then you sang it because that's what you were being paid to do but I'm I'm I'd say this I'm just a singer you know I mean I do Ronnie Scott's and the 606 and all of that but I, I've never ever said I mean I was so nervous about doing Ronnie Scott's after being asked for 27 years and I said yes and when Ronnie came back and handed me a piece of paper with a date on it in six weeks time, I was a nervous wreck for the next six weeks because it meant me having to stand in a jazz club and that it always scared me because I just thought, you know, there's a big shoes to fill. Anyway, I did Ronnie Scott's in the first, from the first night, it was wonderful because I just thought I'm not a jazz singer, but I did great balls of fire. And every since I've, that was in April, 1987, first time I did Ronnie's. And if I did Ronnie's tomorrow, Great Balls of Fire would be in, in the set because that's what people expect. And, and a medley of Jailhouse Rock and, and Rock Around, you know, all of that stuff. But I mean, I'll do, of course, I always do Stevie. There's always some Stevie Wonder in, in my set, but I, it's just, I just do what I want to do, but I'm not a, a jazz singer. I'm, I'm not a jazz singer. I'm not a pop singer. I'm not a rock singer. I'm, I'm just a singer. Tell me what you want me to sing and I'll try. Well, you've just mentioned Stevie Wonder. Uh, there's my boy. Uh, yeah, okay. Then I think anything you take from Stevie Wonder, I'm going to love because I love yeah. Stevie Wonder. So. Well, I got a chance to work with him as well. 
Um, I've told this story so many times, but there was one day, it was, uh, I don't know, 70, 71. And uh, it was a Tuesday morning. And I'll tell you how I know in a minute. Uh, and the phone rang, it was 10 o'clock. And this guy came on the phone and he said, um, is that Madeline Bell? Yes. He said, my name is blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm Stevie Wonder's manager. And I went, yeah, right. You know, like Stevie Wonder's manager is going to be ringing me. Uh, and he said, uh, I was given your number. Uh, Steve opened last night at the Talk of the Town. Yes, I know, because I was already planning to go. And he sang his latest record, but he didn't have the backing singers. And I was wondering if you would be able to come along with it and bring another singer to do the backing vocals for him at the Talk of the Town for the next two weeks. What? Yeah. Well, can you be at the Royal Garden Hotel at two o'clock, three o'clock? Yeah. Okay. I quickly ring up. Pat Arnold, P.P. Arnold. She went, girl, yeah. <laughs> we met at the Royal Garden Hotel, went up to Stevie's suite. Uh, he greeted Steve and it was, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder. He, and he had just dropped the little Stevie Wonder. Before then, he was always known as little Stevie Wonder. He was six feet then. And he took us into his bedroom, which had keyboards all the way around the room. And he went to the one particular keyboard and, he's, and he played this and he said, oh, this is what I want you to sing. Here I am, baby, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours, yeah. That's all we had to sing was that one song at the end of his set at the top of the town for two weeks. They said, we can only pay you $200 a week. We would have paid them. Yeah. So I had uh, two weeks with Stevie Wonder at the top of the town. And then oh. I've seen him quite a few times since then you know uh, we bump into each other and, and he's actually in his dressing room in Jakarta he actually accompanied singing me singing lately <laughs> oh wow another beautiful song yeah yeah and I always do this always a Stevie song in my set no matter where I am and to the point that uh oh god See, this is this moves on a, a lot, lot further on. But I mean, I worked with the jazz orchestra of the Concert from Amsterdam, and we do the Ray Charles program because we promoted the film Ray in in Holland. And then they decided decided shall we do for first part we can do Stevie Wonder. So we do Stevie Wonder and uh, Ray Charles in first half, Stevie Wonder in second half. Oh wow. Well, Madeline, this hour has gone really quick, so I've got to come Did to I? my final question, which is um, a bit of a shame, but I wanted to talk about representation again, and it connects to Stevie Wonder, because obviously, as uh, he is one of the, the, the greatest figures in, in music, and yeah. um, he obviously has been, you know, a figure of representation for a lot of uh, younger Black artists, but you have, um, as well, uh, throughout your life, what sort of things do have people come up to you and 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 said to you in terms of how you've helped them, without knowing it, how you've helped them in their careers? Because I'm sure that must have happened. Ah, uh, well, I mean, I've had singers say to me, "Oh, well, I remember you when I was a kid. I always wanted to do this, and and I always wanted to to sing that song. And and my mum and dad, they love your singing, and and uh, uh, you inspired me. But but you know, I mean, you, you don't know how you did it. 
they it's it's all in in their their lives and in their hearts but you don't you, i mean i'm just stand there and, and sing the song i always try and to think I, I tend to sing and talk with my eyes closed because i'm picturing what i'm talking about and when i'm singing i i like to be in the story be in in the picture so if i'm singing uh uh a Stevie song, you know, if it's magic, then why can't it be everlasting? You know, I'm thinking about what I'm singing. So hopefully that comes through and, and that is what inspires a lot of younger people to 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 do what I do. You know, I mean, I'm, I don't like to think of myself as any kind of uh, teacher. I mean, I'm not, and I've done, I've done work workshops and things in Holland and I keep saying to them I'm not a musician I can't write music I, I can't play music I don't play it said yeah but we just want your experience we want to know what you did and how you did it and and uh, uh, that's me you know I, I I don't know how I I um uh I don't know how, what I do for other people but if it makes them feel good and helps them to move on then then, then that's fantastic I'm really good at, at advice and I always used to say, I wish they had let me spend a month with Amy Winehouse. I would have cleaned her up straight away. <laughs> well, Madeline Bell, you have been one of the most iconic, important and influential figures uh, in music because you have contributed so much to so many people's music. I mean, it's been a phenomenal career and for your own career. And what I really absolutely love about you, I read something that you performed on stage when you were 11, uh, Eartha Kitt's Santa Baby. Now I interviewed Eartha Kitt in the eighties and she had your power. She had, she, you know, she had this, you don't fuck with Eartha baby. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, what I love And you've about got it too. And I absolutely adore it. That's so, what I love. Because I mean, America treated her so bad. She really had to fight for everything she got. And she was so good at everything that she did. So, and and it's true. And I, I'm not sure how old I was, but I got I won first prize because I mimed to Santa Baby in school, and I won a bunch of flowers. <laughs> that was that was my prize. Thank you so much for taking part, and really thank you for being who you are. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for being interested in me. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. 
What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST 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 ACA